You may be seated. It is, uh, it's exciting for me to be, to have uh, the college students back. It's exciting for me to see all of you here, but it's very exciting for me to see these young college students. Um, it's hard for me to grapple with the fact that I can call them young now, because <laughs> uh, they get younger than me every year, it seems. But um, I tell you, I, I, this week was doing a lot of reading about uh, conferences some of the leadership of Campus Outreach will be going to. I'd hope to go to it and won't be able to, about how the church uh, will impact the coming generations and how each of us, no matter what your age is, plays a role in that. And it just excited me to know that we have so many um, age people in our church that are going to be the next generation of leaders. Um, and I pray that this place will be a place that champions the cause, that we uh, are not so short-sighted ever to, uh, to see the warts without seeing the blessing. And I know that we all make lots of mistakes, and young people uh, make more than our share. I know, I do. I put myself in that category. And so we need everybody. We need the wisdom of age and the wisdom of experience. And we need the wisdom of experience, though, uh, you that have it, you that are gray-headed, as the Bible says, whether it be in actual gray hair or just wisdom. We need you. And what we need you to do is to pray and seek out young men and women to pour your life into to know them and to let them know you and to let them see you fail and to let them see you do life correctly. Walk with them so that they don't have to experience all the things that you experience firsthand and so that they can challenge. i tell you what it'll do. Some of you probably think, you know, there's no way. I'm busy. I'm tired. All those things may be true. But it will energize you to pour your life out for Christ into another person. It will energize you. And you will stop seeing your life as that it will come to an end in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And you will see that now my life will continue 30 and 40 and 50 years from now. And my life will continue beyond that because these people I'm trusting the truth to will pour it into other faithful people who will pour it into other faithful people. And so that when Christ returns... Paul will have fruit from this generation that he never saw with his eyes and that he never specifically knew by name, but he prayed for and he labored for and he poured out his life for the fruit of you and me. You and me. Let me get that right. Okay? And so as tired as you may be and as busy as you may be, you are not wasting your life to pray and seek and find someone to pour your life into your time is multiplied at that point. And uh, it is worth the effort and the pain and the suffering. All right. Take my life. You know, take my life and let it be consecrated for you, is what we should say. The love of God, part two. For God so loved the world. We last week parked on the first phrase. 
We began to look, I said, at the greatest and the most used and abused verse in all of the Bible. This verse, John 3.16, is usually the very first verse translated in the New Testament into a new language. The first thing that tribesmen in the backwoods or back jungles of Africa or Asia or South America reads is in their language is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. And that's no mistake because by nature we know that we are separated from God. And by nature if you look at the religions of the cults of the black Hindu the voodoo of the jungles, they generally know that God hates them and think that God hates them and believe that God's out to get them. So the translators rightly translate this verse before any other because it, bright, it, it changes their mind. It revolutionizes their life to see God loves me. They've never thought about it. They've never seen how it could be possible that God could love them. <coughs> Karl Barth, a great theologian uh, from Switzerland, was traveling in the early 20th century, somewhere around 19, late 1950s, 60s in the United States, giving lectures on theology. And during these lectures, he would pause often at the end and give the audience, young people usually, acad- academics, uh, bright theologians, he would give them opportunity to ask questions. He went to uh, Princeton and gave one of these lectures, and one of the young men there said, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever crossed your mind? That's a, uh, Barth wrote in his journal, that's a very American question. That nobody else in the world would ask that question. What's the greatest thought that has ever crossed your mind? He bowed his head and he thought, reflected, thought, quietly. Minutes passed. The audience got restless. And finally, with a stern look, he looked at the audience and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the question and answer ended. Isn't that the most profound thought that's ever crossed your mind? That Jesus loves you and that he cared so much that he wrote it down that you might know that he loves you. There's no greater thought. I agree. I didn't think of it, but I agree. I probably would have tried to come up with some great thought, you know, some original uh, work in my mind that I could have puffed up my pride and said, look at me. I, I think about great and deep things. I sure would have never thought about a nursery rhyme or a children's song. But it's true when you stop and think about it. I agree with him. For God, God all sufficient. Lord, the Lord will provide, the Lord who heals, the Lord our banner, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord our peace, the Lord our shepherd, judge, Lord God, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord is there, the Lord of hosts, most high, mighty one, the branch, holy one, God of seeing, jealous God, deliverer, savior, redeemer, shield, strength, righteous one, everlasting God, God of the covenant, mighty God, God our rock, the Son of Righteousness, Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Ancient of Days, King, the first and last, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This text has been a favorite of so many people through the years. D.L. Moody tells the story about traveling in the 19th century 
and going over to England. And he met this young man named Henry Morehouse, who was a pastor, a young pastor in England. And they had a conversation. At the end of the conversation, D.L. Moody says, partly truth and partly just being kind. Hey, if you're ever in the United States, let me know if you're in Chicago and I'll let you preach at my church. He had no idea the young man would take him up on his offer. He later, after his travels, got on his boat, returns back to the United States, travels back to Chicago. He's been in Chicago a few weeks and he gets a telegram and it says this. I'm in New York. I'll be in Chicago this Sunday. Morehouse. <laughs> he had a problem. He had never heard the young man preach. And he was going to have to entrust him one of the best and brightest pulpits with one of the largest crowds. And on top of that, he was leaving town. So he wouldn't even be there to correct the young man's errors that he would obviously make being so young and not knowing the Bible very well. So he thought through this problem he had created for himself because he did extend the offer, though he didn't think it would really be taken. And he talked with his wife, he talked with his fellow pastors on staff, and they came to this conclusion. Moody said, I will go on my trip and Morehouse will preach. And if he preaches well, he can preach to all the sermons that day. They had several services. If he doesn't preach well, thank him for coming. Don't let him preach anymore. He leaves for his trip. Morehouse comes and preaches. Moody stays gone for a week and comes home at the end of the week on Friday. Goes in, reunites with his wife, and in conversation says, So how did the young man do? She said, Oh, he's a much better preacher than you are. <laughs> he has told us all week about God loving sinners. Moody said, That's not true. God doesn't love sinners. And so he went to the... She said, if you don't believe it, go hear him. He's still preaching? <laughs> yeah, you said. If he preaches well, let him preach it. Let him keep preaching. So he's been preaching well. We've been letting him preach. All week this young man's filled Moody's pulpit. So he comes in kind of bothered by this statement about God loving sinners. Sits down, Morehouse unshaken by his presence, walks to the pulpit, lays his Bible down and says, I've searched all week for a text, but I can find none greater than John 3.16. So let me preach it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. It was the sixth day in a row he had preached on the same text. Because his conclusion was there's no greater text in all of the Bible than God loved sinners. And so we come to this text and we think about this text. And I know many of you may be thinking he's going to preach six or eight or ten lessons off this same verse. Maybe not eight. Today we want to look at the great, infinite, giving unchangeable love of God and the fact that God loves us. This love will change your heart if you're unsaved and if you're saved it will set your heart on fire for zeal for our God. God's love is great. That's the first thing I want us to see. God's love is great. For God so loved. What is this word loved? 
So means a measure, a particular measured type of action. It's not just a general, flung, wide love. It's a specific type of love. For God so, specifically, in this way, loved. How did He love? He loved with a great love. Paul writes for us in Ephesians 2, 4-5, through 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love. There's where... See, I'm not original. Nothing ingenious. It's just the text. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This verse tells us that God's love is great. We degrade the power of the word great because we often use it for things that are not so great. We overuse the word. The Puritans refused to use... uh, language that attributed, you know, words like great and awesome and um, everlasting and, uh, you know, mighty and all these words. They refrain from using those words about anything or anyone except God. And the reason is, is because when you overuse them, they lose their impact. Have you ever been around the uh, the, you know, the chick that cries, the sky's falling, the sky's falling, or the little boy that cries wolf. After a while, nobody listens to that anymore. The same things happen with this uh, language. Great, mighty, wonderful, awesome. We use it so much that it doesn't mean anything. I mean, people say they had a great time at the movie. People say they got a great car, a great wife, which I do have a great wife. People say they have great children. People say they... There was a great ball game. People say it was a great supper. I mean, everything's great in life. I kind of imagine that Paul was a lot like the Puritans. When he used the word great, God was somewhere to be found. We have a great God who has great love. We've lost the impact of that simple word because we overuse it. We throw it around lightly. When I pause to think of the love of God, I cannot help but worship Him. It was the thought of this great love that caused John Newton to write Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When he contemplated the fact that God could love a slave trader, when he thought about a God who could love a sinner who had rebelled against his father, when he thought about a God who could love a man who had been a fornicator and an adulterer, When Augustine came to this text and thought about all of the times he had been with a prostitute just in the last few months, he thought, what a great God with great love. Those who know their sin know how great God is. God is rich in mercy and He has great love. He loves us when we are still sinners, when we are dead in our trespasses and when we are hopeless. He makes us alive in Jesus Christ. I don't know how D.L. Moody, I'm not talking bad about him, but I don't know how he could come to a conclusion that God doesn't love sinners. If he didn't love sinners, he could not love us. We are sinners saved by grace, but we are sinners. If he couldn't love sinners, we would be hopeless. God's love is great. God's love is infinite. Ephesians 3, 18-19 says, Paul, in the middle of his prayer, may have, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
We can only know the love of God in part. God has touched us with His love. He has baptized us in His love. But we can't fathom how deep and how wonderful this love really is. We may try with our feeble minds, but it escapes us. It escapes language. It escapes words. Paul says his love is wider, longer, higher, deeper than the whole universe. His love is greater than everything. His love is great. His love is infinite. Frederick Lehman wrote The Love of God, a hymn we sang just a few weeks back. And in that hymn, he talks about the love of God. The last stanza, as I said then, was written by an anonymous man in an insane asylum in a, in a cell where he lived out his last days, declared insane. He wrote the last stanza, which I've put on the screen for you. This is what an insane man said. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' songs. I tell you, it's better to go to heaven Go to eternal life insane knowing the love of God than it is to go to hell with all of your faculties intact and never experience the love of God. Every ounce of you should think, what a great love. What an infinite love. God's love is giving. It's not just great. It's not just infinite. It's giving. The New Testament never speaks of the love of God except to reference a specific act. It always references the cross. You won't read a phrase about the love of God unless it also talks about what He did to give us His love through the cross. Why is this true? Because the love of God is not some vague general love that's not expressed to man. Our world is full of people who say, oh, if God's a loving God, He'll accept me just as I am. If God's a loving God, nobody will go to hell. If God's a loving God, I can come as I am and stay as I am and come how I may. God will have to accept me because He's a loving God. Do not mistake love as the human experiences it and love that is God. This love flows from the very character of who God is. 1 John 4 tells us God is love. It comes from His very character. So therefore it cannot go against all of His character. He's not only love. I think that's the, one of the weaknesses of focusing on love to the, to the exclusion of all of the other attributes of God. God is loving. God is love. But He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He is merciful. He is gracious. Because the love of God is not some vague and general expression, God's love is very specific. He loved the world so much that He acted on His love and sent His Son to die on the cross. He can never, we should never be able to question the love of God because the cross it should always be in front of us. Whenever you reach suffering in your life, whenever there are hard times, what keeps you, what prevents you 
from questioning God's love is the cross. No matter how hard your trial is, no matter how deep your suffering is, no matter how strong your mental anguish may be, the cross is there to remind you that God loves you, that He suffered and bled and died on your behalf. And so we see life is hard. Suffering is the norm for the Christian. But we can rest assured of His great, infinite, giving love because we can see the cross. There's a great advantage to living after, uh, to living after the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. The Old Testament saints could not see the cross. They trusted something that was mysterious to them. How would God? They knew God would redeem them, but how would He redeem them? We have the advantage, the Bible tells us, of looking back at the cross. We've been blessed to be born in the age of the gospel, to see it, to hear it, to experience it over and over again. Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a good person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear what Paul said? But God chose, God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed it. He gives it. He doesn't just love. He gives His love in a very specific, unique way. He gave His own one and only Son. If you never showed your love to your wife, she would assume that you did not love her. If you never showed your love to your children, they would assume you did not love them. No matter what you said with your mouth, if you never showed the love, then they wouldn't believe you really loved them. God is the same way. If God only said in the Bible, I love you, but did nothing to act on that love, how would we know He loved us? When we were burning in hell for our sin, how would we know God loved us? Just because He said He did? See, He doesn't just say it. He acts on His love. He acted on His love and that action is the cross. He has shown us the greatest way possible to show love. And that way is the cross. Jesus said in John 12, 23-24, And Jesus said to them, The hour has come that the Son of Man might be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. But if it falls to the ground and dies, then it will bear much fruit. And Jesus said this directly in reference to His cross. Jesus fell to the ground and died so that He might bear the fruit of believers. So that He might bear the fruit of those who would be saved. So that He might show the love of God. God had been saying from heaven through the prophets over and over and over again, I love you. I love you. I love you. And on the cross, He acted on His love. He showed us His love. God's love is great. It's infinite. It is a giving love. It's an unchangeable love. God's love is based on His unchangeable character. It's obvious when you read 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's His character. That's who He is. This love is one of the basic characteristics of the person of God. God cannot be anything but loving in all His ways. I'm going to challenge your thoughts here. 
Even hell is an expression of God's love. I thought I'd get those looks like, you got to be kidding. If, God, if there was no hell, God would not love himself. Because he is holy and he cannot have a sinner come to him in sin. And if he just said, well, I know I'm holy, I know I'm separate, I know that I am not a sinner, but oh well, I'll just let everybody come on in. He would not love himself. And so God would have broken the first and greatest commandment to worship God and God alone. Hell is loving towards those who are saved. If God saved you from your sins and said there is one way and all must come by that way, but then at the end in front of his throne room, in his throne room, in front of his throne, he said, I know I told you there was only one way and I know I told you it was narrow and I know I told you it was tough and I know I told you it wouldn't be easy and I know I told you you'd have to suffer in this life and leave life and leave family and leave treasures and leave all of these things for my name's sake and that you would get eternity and that's the only way you would get eternity with me. But I've decided everybody is going to experience heaven. There's no such thing as hell. That would not be loving to his children. It would not be loving to himself. And most of all, it would not be loving to Jesus Christ, his son. If there was no hell, God would be accused and guilty of the greatest child abuse ever in the history of the world. He would have caused Christ to suffer beyond measure for things he did not do for no reason. Oh well, everybody's in. I'm just going to wipe sin away. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to pass over it as if it doesn't exist. And Jesus says all the time, wait, I paid a price. I gave my life. I spilt my blood. I suffered. I came down from heaven. If this is the way it was going, what was the purpose of my death? What was the purpose of my life? If there is no fear of hell, there's no love in God. God would then be unholy. God would then be unjust. God would then be unmerciful. God would then be ungracious. And so we know that even the most horrific concept in the Bible, hell, rightly understood, expresses the love of God. God is love. Because I thought this might be a struggle for you to wrap mind around, I thought, let's look at Hosea. Hosea is an Old Testament book written to show God's great, infinite, giving, unchanging love. Hosea is a story of a man in Israel who was commanded by God to take a wife. Her name was Gomer. And she was a prostitute. The Bible has very strong words about her. But yet God tells Hosea, the prophet, go and marry her. Take her as your own. Hosea 1, 2 through 3 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to, uh, to Hosea, Go take, your, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. 
For the land commits great whoredom by, by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblime, and she conceived and bore him a son. Guys, can you imagine the horror that Hosea must have felt being a pure and righteous man? Not having given himself to anybody. Probably having taken a Nazarite vow. Not to let wine touch his mouth or cut his hair nor be with a woman sexually. And now God, as a reward for all of that love and holiness and righteousness, says, go take the most defiled woman in town. Guys, it would be literally like God telling you, go down to the brothel down there and, and, and get you a wife. It's unthinkable. We can't imagine that. But we can. I hope you can. Because that's what God did for Israel. And that's what God has done for you. If you're saved today, God literally took you from being a prostitute to other things, giving your life away to other gods. And He walked in the midst of that and took you and said, I'll have you. The most pure, undefiled, holy, and righteous being walked into sin and took you from that sin took you from that idolatry and said, I'll be your God. and You'll be my person, my people. So God intervenes in this relationship in verses 4 through 9 in chapter 1. And He says, you'll have a son. And the first son will be named Jezreel. And his, that name in the Hebrew means scatter. God was going to scatter the people of Israel all over the face of the earth. His second child was a daughter. Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. God was saying that there would come a day when He would have no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. And then He finally says, You'll have another son and His name will be Lo-Amah, which means not my people. God said to Hosea, Name Him this, for you are not my people and I am not your God. If the story stopped in chapter 1, verse 9, we would have nothing but dread and horror to look forward to. But that's not where it stops. That's not where the, uh, the story comes to a conclusion. It's really the midway point of our drama that shows God as the great lover of those who are undeserving. Because in verse 10 he says, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Now, he repeats for them the covenant He gave to Abraham. I promised you that I would give you descendants and those descendants would be like the sands of the sea. And I'm telling you, it's still going to happen. Though you're going to be scattered, though you will have no mercy, and though you will not be My people, your people will multiply and fill the face of the earth. And I will be their God. They'll be My children. And in this part of the story, He changes the name of all of the children. Jezreel is still named Jezreel. But it also in the Hebrew means to plant. Because when you scattered seed, you were planting those seed for harvest. And so God's saying, I'm going to plant these people in the land. Then He changes the name of Lo-Ruhamah to mercy. Just Ruhamah. He does away with no mercy and He says, I'll have mercy. And He changes it from Lo-Amah to just Amah. Not my people to my people. 
God tells Hosea in a very dramatic way, go and take this prostitute, make her your wife, have children with her, name those children, scattered, no mercy, and not my children. And then he stops him and says, now I want you to change their name as a speech to the people of Israel. Say that Jezreel is now planted. La Rohama now means Rohama, mercy. Not, not mercy. And people, he says will be my people. Amai. They will be my people. This is what he says to this man who was righteous and holy and undefiled. Go find you a defiled woman, a debased woman, and have three children with her. And what will she do in repayment for your love for her, Hosea? Surely she'd love Hosea. Surely she would give her life for Hosea. Surely a woman in this case would be Forgiving and loving and and cling to Him like no other man. But that's not the story Hosea 2, 5 through 8 gives us. Look at what it says. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. This is exactly what God's done for us. This is what happened to to, uh, Hosea. He brought the prostitute home. He had three children with her, and then she spit in his face and went back to being a prostitute. He did not go and pitch a fit. He went and gave money, possessions, and great valuable oil to these men who were sleeping with his wife, so that she would be provided for. Because she wouldn't have what he would give her from his own hand. He went and gave his gift to these other men who were with his wife. And he says, she had no idea that those things came from me, not from those men. We're at a very dramatic point in the story. I mean, most of our just minds think, She ought to be hung for activity like this. She should be abandoned. Our get divorced quick culture tells us if a person acts, I know. Look, I've had those thoughts when I was younger, especially when I was first married. If my wife did these things, I'd leave her. First time I read Hosea, I thought, that's a joke. There's no way I'd do that. My attitude has changed, not because of who I am, but because of who God shows himself to be to me. I've now entered a covenant with my wife that I will never leave her, no matter her actions. Why? Because God never has left me, no matter my sin. He's always loved me. He's always been my husband. He's always cared for me. Even when I blasphemed His name and called His good gifts gifts from others, He still gave the gift. Hosea 3, 1 through 3 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. You've got to understand this. This gives the whole story of who we are. From the very beginning, we are defiled sinners. We do not deserve the love of God. Yet God has loved us 
even when we were sinners. That's what it says in the New Testament. That's what it says all through the Scripture. And He paid a price for us, which we have spit on and never loved Him back in return for His love for us. And we've gone on playing the harlot or playing the prostitute, loving other things more than we love God. And yet God has continued to offer grace and mercy to us through common possessions and family and friends and even health and even at some points wealth in our life. And He does this continually though people spit at His offering and call it no good. And then He bought us. He shows us that He bought us. Now, you've got to understand, Hosea bought her at a slave auction. Slaves in that day were sold naked. They stood in a slave auction naked. And the people in the audience bid on them. So here Gomer is, naked, before all of the people of the town. And everyone there says, that's Hosea's wife. I know who that is. Look at her. Look how, she, look how she puts his name down. Look how she doesn't even love this man who's done all these things for her. Look how she repays his kindness. She's up there as a slave to be some other man's wife. And instead of hating her, Hosea, when the auction opens, says, others probably bid. Maybe one man said, I'll give five shekels of silver. Sizing her up, thinking, well, I'll give five shekels for her. And Hosea says, I'll give 15. Maybe somebody else came back and said, I'll give 15 and a half. And he said, I'll give 15 and I'll give barley to cover the cost of that half. And nobody else bids. And so Hosea has to take the humiliating walk to go up and take Gomer by the hand and lead his own wife back to his home where she should have been to begin with. And he bore that shame for her. When she didn't know to be shamed, by our own failure, he was shamed. But he did it in love, and he took her back. How does that relate to us? I tell you, we were wicked and sinful, and God loved us. When we were sinners, God loved us. And he took us in, and he cared for us. And instead of loving him for caring for us, we spit at him for caring for us. And we went and played the harlot with all these other gods, health and wealth and prosperity and popularity and whatever the gods may be. And yet He continued to supply His mercy to us. He continued to give us grace. He continued to love us when we were sinners. Until the day we stood on the auction block naked. Just like Adam and Eve, we were naked. And we were shamed. And Jesus said, I purchased Him. Not with silver and gold. Not with barley. But with my life. I'll take that one. That one's mine. And that one will come home to my house. And I will love that one like he's never been gone. And I will clothe that one. And I will give myself, continue to give myself. And I will plant that one in the land. And it will be prosperous. And it will bear fruit. And it will see eternal life. Because I bought it with my blood. There's no higher price that could have been paid for you. For God so loved the world. That's how much. When you were a whore, 
in sin and idolatry. He gave his life for you so that he might take you home and you might be his wife. You may be here today and you may say his love is great, it's infinite, it's giving, it's unchanging, but I've played the whore. I'm worshiping other gods. This message is for you then. God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son so that the world through Him might be saved. But you can only be saved by that Son by believing in Him alone. It's the only way you can be saved. I beg you, believe. Believe in Him today. If you're here today and you're saved, and you might say, I'm saved by this great, infinite, giving, unchangeable love. How does this apply to my life? One way that it applies is that we're called to love others the way God has loved us. 1 John 4, 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Do you love others the way that God loves you? If you're saved today and you've experienced that love, you're commanded to love others the same way. How often should we forgive them, Jesus? Seven times? No. Infinitely. Seventy times seven. Infinitely love them. Well, Jesus, they'll drag us and kill us and they'll persecute us and they'll say all manner of evil against us. What will we do in that day? Rejoice for being counted worthy to suffer in my name. But Jesus, I'll serve you all these years on the earth and they'll treat me so bad when you've done all to serve Him. Just count yourself an unworthy servant and say, God has loved me and I love them. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't want to be Hosea. Then you don't know the love of God. If you don't want to be Hosea, you've not been bought. You've not been brought to the house and clothed in His mighty love so that you might go and love others. And how can I make a bold statement like that? Because Romans 5, 5 says, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. We're to love others because His love is in us. And if we can't love others, then as John says, he begs the question, if you can't love others this way, do you really have the love of God? You can love others because God's Holy Spirit has planted God's love in your heart. Confess your lack of love today. Believe in Jesus Christ and begin to love God and others as only God can love Himself and love you. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at You, Your character, and how Your character is played out for us very practically in Your love for us. I'm so thankful that whenever You write about Your love, it's not some vague promise. It is a specific action. And that action is the cross. Jesus, thank You that when I was the prostitute, on sale before the world and all the world would bid for me and my soul. 
you were there to rise and say, oh, that's part of my bride. I died. I paid the price. I will take that one home with me. Help us to understand that. That love that reaches beyond anything we can imagine and loves us. Loved us when we were sinners and loves us now that we're saved and calls us to love others the way we have been loved. Lord Jesus, please draw us again to you. Forgive us for being so cold towards your truth. Forgive us for settling for the things of this world, being so entranced by the riches around us and the ease around us that we forget what we're here for. We're pilgrims passing through to our home. Help us not to play the prostitute this week. Help us not to sell out to all the gods that surround us. Help us to sell out and to give ourselves completely and faithfully to you because you have been faithful. Now we imitate your faithfulness by your power and through your Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.